0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: American corn farmers, a proud and chosen profession inspired through generations. Tested, resilient, and committed to giving back as much as they're growing, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with every bushel while replenishing every increasingly precious resource, like the reduction of soil loss by 40% with every acre grown. In a world where sustainability matters more than ever, we need all the help we can get. And there's no greater resource than the capable hands of American corn farmers.
2: Mara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started speaking with Cindy Barassi, president of the Colon Cancer Foundation. She's here to talk about the new guidelines for colorectal cancer screening and the importance of getting screened. Thanks for talking with me today, Ms. Barassi. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get started with the first and most important question. What are the new guidelines for colorectal cancer screening?
3: Well, we're very excited that the new guidelines from the USPSCF are screening begins at age 45 for Americans at average risk for colorectal cancer, rather than age 50. And this means that an additional 21 million Americans can now be screened for colorectal cancer.
2: Can you talk about the the data that led to the decision to lower the age for first uh, colorectal cancer screening from 50 to 45? Sure.
3: It is a rather complex way of um, analyzing data, and it, it actually started almost a decade ago, I have to be honest. Our organization has been looking at the data alongside epidemiologists from the American Cancer Society going back, again, almost a decade we have actually been hosting a summit called the Early Age Onset Colorectal Cancer Summit. This was actually our seventh summit in May. And we've, we've started seeing the trend of younger and younger Americans um, showing up with the disease about 10 years ago. And we use uh, the, what's called the SEER registry housed by the National Cancer Institute. And then we also use something called CISNET, And researchers at the American Cancer Society actually started looking at that data and changed their guidelines about three years ago uh, as a result of a summit that we held with them. We were very excited, but the USPSTF Preventative Task Force did not change their guidelines, as you know, until this year. And that's what most insurers go by. Um, The payers don't really go by, you know, don't change their rules and their payments until USPSDF changes their guidelines. That's what's so exciting about the change this year. And they use the same data to do their modeling and statistics, and that's what changes their their guidelines. The other thing that they take into consideration is, of course, the ability for our healthcare system to handle the onloading of an additional 21 million adults to get screened. Because um, you have to remember that right now, nearly a third of the Americans over the age of 50 aren't already getting screened. So you throw in another 21 million Americans, 45 and older, um, that's a huge, that's a huge population to, to get screened. So that's that was the, another consideration for them.
2: So colorectal p- cancer patients are being diagnosed younger, as you pointed mm-hmm. out. I read that the American College of Gastroenterology um, made the recommendations uh, in two, 2005, and then in 2008 again to lower the, the screening age um, uh, because of the increased risk they were seeing. So it's curious that the U.S.T.S.T.F. didn't um, take that up until you know, so many years later. But you know, better late than never.
3: Their cycle for changing their guidelines is frustratingly slow. It was it's it was very frustrating for our, for us, all the organizations in the colorectal cancer community to have to watch and wait for this as we watch so many young patients die to be quite honest with you uh, you. we actually see patients die sometimes multiple patients that we know a week every day and we get to know these patients and it's just it's heart-wrenching and you know we know the parents um you know we actually know parents that lose patients you know their sons and daughters as young now as 18 and 16 so um it is it is really frustrating to wait for these lines to take place. And then it's even frustrating now, um, now that this has taken place, the insurers aren't responsible for starting the payments until 2023. So yes, really, so, yes. So now it's, you know, now it's us putting the pressure on the insurers to, to get on the ball and start the payments as soon as possible and not wait until the last possible moment to implement the payments for these screenings. Is that Not every to take state time? or is that, is that across That's you. The- that's universal, yes. yes. So now it's up to every state and it's up to every insurer, you know, so.
2: Right. Um, right. I'm curious with, with this data, the National Cancer Institute is saying that these numbers are going to double by 2030. With that data in mind, why not age forty? So this
3: is an equally frustrating uh, rationale. So what they look at is life years earned mm-hmm. and life years lost, and the net result, and what we would get if we started screening earlier. And that's really the the rationale. Um, it's quite frustrating as an individual to think that they're looking at you know global public health on that scale, but that's honestly one of the largest considerations for it. But I want you to keep in mind that the current guidelines still recommend, even if we're not starting screening at age 40, the current guidelines do recommend that we be diagnosing based on symptoms. And those are current guidelines, and that's always been the case. So even if we were starting screening at age 50 before, doctors, primary care physicians still should have been looking for symptoms and signs for decades, and and they weren't necessarily doing that. And that's something that we have to be doing a much better job of, as you know.
2: You know, I read an interesting story um, recently in one of the health blogs about a young lady who was 27 years old. And, uh, sorry, this is a slightly off topic, but it is, you know, Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. And, um, she went to the gastroenterologist because she, um, was having pain. She had trouble eating and she lost significant amount of weight without trying, I guess, because of her age, um, and because of her weight, the doctor dismissed her concerns and said, Oh, it's great that you've lost all this weight nothing to worry about. I'm not going to do any screening. You're young. You've lost all this weight. It's a blessing that you can't eat solid food. And it turned out she got a second opinion and it turned out that she had a humongous tumor and she had stage three um, cancer, which thankfully she got treated for. Tumor was removed and she's, you know, on the men now, but that I, I wonder if that's, you know, something that young people should be worried about with early onset you know, they're the youth being, you know, being dis- and being dismissed, like, oh, you're young and healthy, you know, I wonder if that's what happened to Chadwick Boseman in any event. So what do you think is driving this trend of younger and younger people um, turning up with, with cancer? So
3: that's actually one of the, the most
2: important things that we look at every year
3: with our summit, and not just the day of the summit, but but all year round, You know, we are looking into research as to why this is happening. And, you know, just a startling statistic for you. So anyone born after the 1990s is two times more likely to to be diagnosed with colorectal cancer and four times more likely to be diagnosed with rectal cancer, which is startling. It's a startling statistic for the public health community and even, you know, someone who's not in the public health realm those are startling numbers. And then of course, the other startling statistic, I, I don't like to quote, but you know, I have to quote is that the most rapidly rising rates are in between the ages of 20 and 29. And again, those are more pronounced in the, on in the rectal side of things. And that's just, those are just devastating statistics. But we don't, we don't know. We have some, some inklings. We, they, they are spending a lot of time looking at That's the food we eat. So is it change is it changes in what we eat? Is it genetically modified foods, which are affecting the gut and the microbiome? Is it, is it the environment? We're looking very closely at epigenetic changes, which may be, you know, driving. So is it, is it a large global epigenetic change in, in in our systems or are, are these young people genetically predisposed to, uh, to develop cancer? and then something in the environment triggers their genetics younger than, say, someone who wouldn't get this until they were in their 60s. Um, because it, it, it is more likely to be you, in the past, you were more likely to be diagnosed with colon cancer in your 60s and 70s. Right. 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 Um, so we don't know if these colon cancers, when you diagnose diagnosed when you're young, it could be that it's an entirely new disease. We just don't know yet. We do know that some of these can be much more aggressive tumors and lesions than in, in those that are diagnosed later on. The other very sad thing is that, you know, you were referencing the 27-year-old. Most of these cases are diagnosed at a very late stage, and we know those pro- what those prognoses are. That's a much poorer prognosis because of the late stage diagnosis and a higher death rate. And it's because they are often dismissed because they're young. And so we have to change that. We really do have to change the whole conversation around this, that you can get colon cancer at any age, and you can
2: have the symptoms at any age for colon cancer. So I know ASCO came up a couple of years ago saying that all alcohol, well, they, they've changed it over the years, but they've upgraded it to say that all alcohol consumption is carcinogenic. That might be another factor I hope that that uh, you know uh, researchers are looking at. I know that the research community is is kind of grasping right now, like what is going on? What is, what is creating this tidal wave? Right. Can you talk about the factors driving the rise in disparity in colorectal cancer? For example, I was just reading about colorectal cancer hotspots throughout the country, Um, you know, places where you're, you know, doctors are finding clusters of, of, of people turning up. Uh, with uh, colorectal cancer diagnoses? Again, it could
3: be, well, there are multiple factors here. We actually do find familial links in, you know, hotspots with familial links. They're called gastrointestinal hereditary syndromes where they go back in generations and they find um, something like Lynch syndrome. It's similar to the, the BRCA gene on the colorectal cancer side. So that's that's one, one possibility. Uh, two is, is health equities and disparities where you've got, you know, a very low income, you know, economically distressed community where there's, you know, low access to, to care or they're in a rural setting where it's difficult to get to um, screening. For example, let's say they're in a very rural area and there is there's hardly any, you know, there's there isn't screening there. There's the language barrier, for example. There's um, education around uh, the food we eat. Uh, obesity is a factor. We do see very different rates of diagnosis, for example, diagnosis and mortality in the black community, as well as um, one very alarming statistic is in the um, American, Indian, and Alaska Native populations. So in the black community we see 20 20% percent higher diagnosis, and we see a 40 percent higher mortality rate, um, unfortunately. And then we see two times that, double that, in the American Indian and Native, American, Native Alaskan population. And uh, the pop- public health and epidemiologists are, are digging into both of those populations. Uh, and all of that has to be addressed immediately. And, and actually, we're, uh, as a foundation, working, for example, here in New York City with one of the largest health systems in the country to directly address that issue.
2: According to the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology, lack of screening seems to also be high up there uh, in terms of disparity rates for um, white people versus uh, people of color.
3: It could be lack of screening. It it could be, um, so there is also demonstrated, there is also demonstrated cultural barriers to not wanting to undergo a colonoscopy, for example. But one thing that um, has been highlighted in the current guidelines, and even, for example, here in New York City, we're stressing, and around New York City, there are multiple options for getting screened other than colonoscopy. And especially now that we've been so hard hit by COVID and screening basically came to a screeching halt, it's had a devastating effect on colonoscopy. and colonoscopy so there are multiple mechanisms for getting screened at at home as a matter of fact um so you can start the process with an at-home fit test uh there's ct colonography you're still doing the prep but you're not undergoing a colonoscopy so they're just as effective the colonoscopy is still the gold standard because if you're going in there and they find something they can take care of while while they're in there um but there is a way for someone to get started with the screening process. And, um, and then of course, if they find something, they would have to undergo the colonoscopy and take care of it. Well, let's, let's
2: stay with that for a second. So there's colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. There's the virtual colonoscopy, which I actually uh, just had one of those uh, two weeks ago. Okay. Um, uh, but you know, my, my doctor didn't even know about virtual colonoscopy. I guess what I, yeah he never heard of it you know he actually you know looked it up on his computer while I was there explaining <laughs> oh boy yeah so, so there's colonoscopy there's virtual colonoscopy there's also um what is it called is it called DNA um stool stool DNA right right there's 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 stool DNA
3: which um the the big name is is ColoGuard. We work right. very closely with the manufacturer, Exact Sciences, and most people know it by the dancing white box on the TV screen.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and, and you can actually get that right shipped right to your home. I guess I'm wondering why is providers not having conversations about these alternatives because th- there is a lot of fear sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the lack of screening. There is that that fear you know, for for a man, it might be uh, emasculating to to undergo the procedure. Uh, some people may be concerned about the anesthesia, being unconscious. There's also a fear of, take your pick. I have the BRCA2 mutation, which puts me at high risk for, um, for colorectal cancer, as well as breast mm-hmm. cancer and a host of other cancers. So this is something that's kind of near and dear to me. So why is it that doctors are not having these conversations with patients and saying, hey, look, you know, because with breast cancer, there's so there's so much conversation. It, 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 the information is just abundant. And I don't see that in the colorectal cancer space. And given the, the almost epidemic numbers of, of people, you know, coming, I mean, 21 million is nothing to sneeze at. Why aren't doctors doing a better job of educating people about their alternatives for some form of screening, any form of, of uh, approved screening? You, Your guess is as good as mine. You know, I tend to be
3: <laughs> I tend to take people to tend to look at me kind of sideways <laughs> in this space because I think it's time to get a little loud, almost like the breast cancer advocates got loud in this space like 20 years ago it's probably about two decades ago, uh, or even, even, you know, even, even the AIDS advocates, you know, HIV AIDS, I'm going to equate it to that where Mm -hmm. they started demanding, demanding that we talk about this. It didn't have the same cultural repercussions, I guess, in the HIV environment, but, but you're right. So I see, I see breast cancer being discussed on the soccer fields at the age of six. So, and little boys, I mean, it's, it's a whole, the whole universe is talking about it. And we talk about this in the colon cancer space. It's like, we're talking about it in an echo chamber. It's just, we talk amongst ourselves about it. Okay. And so we have to get a little bit of activism going here. If, 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 I, if that's the right word, but you're right. We have to be talking about all the alternatives. One, one question came to my mind, did your OBGYN when you were diagnosed with BRCA talk to you about getting a colonoscopy? He did not. So why not? Exactly. Why, why not? Why wouldn't he, if you were more susceptible to colon cancer, why wouldn't he have done that? Why wouldn't any woman who was diagnosed with BRCA be told about that? And why wouldn't every, why, and we're already talking to the ACOG, which is um, American College of um, OBGYNs here in the New York City area about them getting involved because they know how to handle ovarian, you know, cervical breast cancer. So why not get them involved in talking about colon cancer? or they're a natural fit, you know, they see women from a very young age, you know, their entire lives, you know, it's finding men, but
2: yeah, you know, who spoke to me about it was actually my breast oncologist. Mm. So then is it incumbent upon patients, then what's the approach that we take uh, in terms of getting the word out? Do we have, do we educate patients more or should providers be the ones uh, to be educated so that they in turn educate the, the patients. Well I, I think it's it's two pronged. I think we need to go, you know, system down for
3: the providers. That's why I'm very I'm very excited to be talking to you today with your connection into the provider space. Yep. So I think I think educating the providers is critical um, on on as broad a scale. And as active a scale as possible and as quickly as possible, because the, ep- the epidemic, you know, public health will not call it an epidemic. I'll tell you that right now. They are loath to call it an epidemic. I that is out of their mouths. They will not do that. So you, you that. and
2: I agree that it is. I mean, <laughs> yes. <it's
3: a> <laughs> yes. They, uh, but they will not, they will not call it that. When I see 18, 16, 14-year-olds die of colon cancer, that's heart-wrenching. So something has to be done. For example, in the cervical world, they were really successful in arming the patients. And then go back to HIV and breast cancer. They were really successful at arming the patients and activating them. Right. And with information to demand demand awareness um, and, and turn them into their own advocate's and demand change you know, within the primary care space. And when I talk about primary care, I mean any provider who's touching a patient before they could be diagnosed. So it's, I'm even going back to, for example, your pediatrician to your primary care pr- provider, because for example, if you have the BRCA gene or you have the Lynch mutation, that's gonna change when your child is starting to get screened. And it could start as early as you're gonna have that conversation when they're young. Right. You know, starting when they're a child. Is it, it, it this gets into bioethics, but is it 16, 17, 18, 19, 20? It could be that young. We're we're thinking about, you know, some of these mutations are showing up and they're skipping a generation. And we don't know why. We don't know why that's happening or it's just showing up out of the blue. You know, they have these genetic mutations and, and it hasn't been in any of their family members that they know of. So why is that going on? No one, no one in the space knows the answer yet. That's going to have an impact now on their children. And that's really important. The family history um, is another really important way for us to prevent this disease, which isn't being done by the primary care space either. We know for a fact that they aren't taking family histories. And they aren't, for example, when someone's diagnosed. They aren't explaining how important it is for them to now tell their entire family and then do what's called cascade testing and test the entire family for that mutation and their children, because that would change
2: uh, their risk. You know, I think about cervical cancer, for example, and HPV in the link. And I wonder, do you think, and this might be slightly controversial to ask you, but we're talking about it. So let's talk about it. Do you think that if there were pharmaceuticals um, directly related to the colorectal cancer, that there would be a bigger push for education? I'm, I'm wondering. Oh, like if there was a... Right, cure. like if there were like, a drug with yeah. more research and more dollars and, and more um, a, more public awareness of, you know, the disease. Uh, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> I, you know, just I, I would.
3: Yeah, I, not an accusation, just a thought. <laughs> no, I
2: would. Yeah, I wouldn't say no. Thank, well, thank you. you for your patience with the dogs and the moving oh, around. Are, no problem. <laughs> I I put my dogs downstairs because I know exactly how. <laughs> just, them a little bit, but um, right. thank you so much for your time. And you. Uh, you know, we will be in touch. And, uh, you know, have a great day. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye.
1: From the lower nine to uptown, mid-city to the West Bank, we've got you covered. New Orleans, WHIV, 102.3 FM.
2: At the height of the pandemic in 2020, small clinics, pharmacies, and underserved rural communities were shut out of receiving personal protective equipment, or PPE, as suppliers gave preferential treatment to large hospital systems. Enter Rhino Medical, a multinational, majority-minority-owned healthcare product distribution company based in Columbia, South Carolina, providing medical products for hospital systems, long-term care facilities, and to homes across the country. Joining me are Lance Brown and Elliot Haney, CEO and COO, respectively, of Rhino Medical to talk about their role in filling the needs of underserved facilities and communities during the most distressing period of the pandemic and beyond. Thanks for talking to with me today.
4: Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us.
2: It's great to have you here. Let's get started. So Rhino Medical was born out of a need among smaller health systems and pharmacies to get their hands on PPE during the pandemic but you were running a payment processing company. You were running Swipe Fast. Can you talk about how it came to you that this was a need you could fill? How did you make the transition from finance to logistics?
4: Sure. A, that's a question we get asked commonly because it's such a um, com- complete opposite uh, industry. So, it, And it really goes down to relationships. So one of the, the guys that we hired from um, Swipe Fast, Trip Robinson, who's a partner in Rhino, he's spent 20 plus years in Medical sales, and he had a lot of like deep rooted, long standing relationships with hospitals here in our state. And even though we were a processing company, our philosophy and the way that we approach business is the same as versus the relationship base. And with us in our state, we were getting everybody, everybody was getting hit hard, but from an allocation standpoint, we were in, in really bad shape. So if you had a relationship with previous um, long standing relationships, even though we were in a completely different industry. And in the other part of your question, you you were asking about logistics. Um, That's something we were learning like on the fly, really. I mean, I've never I have a finance background um, and that didn't know anything about logistics. But when you're thrown into the middle of something, especially during a global pandemic, you you tend to pick up um, fairly quickly how to do and what to do.
2: I guess I'm wondering where the kernel of the idea came from. Uh, what, how did it occur to you to make that switch? Like, you know, this is something we can do. How did that happen?
4: Part of it, it was if you have a friendship, you have a friend that is in need, and let's use the word desperate to find anything and you're willing to help. And so we were with Trips Relationships, we were kind of asked to come off the sidelines and see if we could help. And, and we were developing, and this is the, the, the origin of it is that their original traditional vendors that they were going to put them on allocation. So they could only get what they were told that they could get. So if you were normally getting 10 of something and you can only get one, then you have to look for alternative sources. And then you start looking into your, your relationships say, who do you know that may can help? And that's kind of how we were able to get introduced to a completely different industry. And then with our business backgrounds I and mean, Elliot spent 10 plus years in manufacturing, um, finance, banking. So we just kind of approach a completely different industry with a fresh set of lens. And we didn't know, we didn't know any bad habits because we were building everything for the first time. And we just knew how to treat people. And then we knew how to source. And from that, it led us to, to, to develop a pretty robust supply chain.
1: There's never been a better time to find out why BetMGM is the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app and place a $10 Moneyline wager on any NBA playoff game. If either team hits a three-pointer in the game, you'll win $200 in free bets. Issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500.
2: During the height of the pandemic, news coverage was filled with stories about hospitals being short on much-needed PPE. But the need was actually greatest among small health systems, pharmacies, and underserved rural communities. So since you were on the ground during this time, can you offer any insight into what that looked like? What did you witness happening?
5: Yeah, so I I guess I can take that question. Uh, I like to think back when it all started. Uh, You were listening to the news, you heard about New York, the state of New York was where the epicenter of the pandemic had uh, going on. And the larger states, the bigger systems had priority over allocation. And even if you think about it from a business standpoint, you know those those medical supply companies or manufacturers were supporting those company those hospital systems that were that were spending more money you know and who 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 did they choose to support they chose to support those larger uh, hospital systems and so when we start thinking about you know uh, smaller physician offices dental offices they didn't have the same buying power as let's say a hospital and so what we saw was they were they, they weren't being supported and that was an opportunity for us to come in and, and fill a, a, a big need.
4: And, and I think also in addition to that, is that everything was still coming from one part of the world. So ninety-five percent of all of the N95s were being made in China, and kind of it's, it's a direct correlation. So we're talking about rural healthcare systems and hospitals compared to some of the larger systems. Same thing with manufacturing, right? So a lot of the smaller manufacturers that were that were making a completely different good or product had to pivot they had to pivot too because of COVID because whatever they were making before, and it could have been the family business that's been in business for 30 or just say decades. What they did in order to keep their lights on and to keep their people paid, they started making PPE that our country needed. And then it allowed someone like us to come in and to develop a supply chain with guys who really needed the support and who customers who really needed the the product. Um, and, And the other thing I think that's really important is that even if a smaller rural system could find it, the minimum orders that they were required to purchase is just unrealistic for them. Like for instance, normally they may only order 10 cases of something, but because of the pandemic in order to get what you needed, they may have to order a container like 2,500 cases. So it's, it's just that it make from a resource uh, standpoint or financial standpoint, even if they could find it, they couldn't afford to buy it because of the minimum requirements and we were able to come in and we didn't, we were, we would break down a case. So if you needed a box of 20 masks, we would sell you a box of 20. If you needed 700, if you needed 10,000, we were able to meet them where they were and it allowed us to create a lane for ourselves.
2: So it sounds like you guys offered flexibility that the smaller systems needed, which is great. What's allocation? You use that term.
4: Yeah. So, so allocation is like, it's almost like rationing out. So if you uh, and a lot of times, what happens with the manufacturers, they went on twenty nineteen data. So what you were purchasing on twenty nineteen is how they de- determined who got what, and how much of what they got. So and and everybody was on allocation. So that means meaning like if you needed a hundred cases because everything was limited and in short supply, you may only get ten cases. And that's what allocation is. And I, and there may be a better definition that you
5: can. No, no, it's it's so. So it, what Lance said is absolutely right. Uh, they went off of your 2019 purchase history. So if you purchased 10 masks, 10 cases of masks a month, that's how much they were allocating. you. They didn't change uh, the 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 need. Obviously increased three to four right. times. So if you can only get 100% of what you purchased in 2019, then you still have let's say, a 70% gap in, in your uh, your uh, supply. And so that, again, that's what created delay for us um, and how we were able to get into the market.
4: And you would see a seven, I mean, it was sometimes a seven to 10X uh, increase of what they normally needed. So if you were only able to get what you purchased in 19, but you need six times or 10 times that number, then every, that's what really created the, the crisis that we're in from a supply standpoint.
5: Yeah, and, and, uh, and a lot of the manufacturers that we work with, it's not like you can just flip a switch. They can't, you know, it's, and, and um, I spent 10 years in manufacturing. It's impossible for you just to say we're going to we're going to make seven times as much as we as we have. You got to think about the people, resources that it takes, the uh, additional assets and equipment that it takes to, to, to run those machines and to, and to build out and build out those products. It, it just can happen. And so, uh, and so that's kind of that was one of the biggest issues.
4: And, and that's where the bigger the state, the bigger the system, the more resources you had. Um, and then the smaller the state, the smaller the system the more rural, the less you had to work with. And that's kind of what created the issue in itself. Is because if you were like a, if you were a small system in rural South Carolina or Georgia, you just you didn't have the buying power, like Elliot said, and the manufacturers that you buy from. I mean, if you only have one piece of bread and you have to share it with all your customers, you're probably going to feed the all ones right. who spend the most amount of money with you first and the most. And that's kind of what was happening with supply chain mm-hmm. that they had to pick and choose who and what they could um, allow to sell to their customers. But somebody was going to be left you know, at the bottom. And, as, and we, we, we recognize that need and were able to help that, that particular demographic.
5: I mean, we, we, we literally had uh, surgery centers shutting down uh, because they couldn't find the resources that they needed, the supplies that they needed. And, and to, for us, that was, I mean, it was it was insane, kind of the, the challenges that they were going through on simple things like a mask. Can I explain? Well, let's can talk
2: about that for a second. Let's talk about, because a lot of these uh, these health, these mid-sized healthcare centers were forced to close their doors um, due to the pandemic. And so how did that affect, your business if at all. And do you think any of them will come back?
4: Yeah. So I mean, we were born out of the pandemic. Right. So all all business new business. But what we recognize is that the small to mid is where we were able to scale and able to create value. And we've been able to still stay here. I mean, because from day one, we understand that we we got the opportunity and it's a humbling business because of COVID, but we want COVID the end just like everybody else. So it's up to us as leaders of a company that we feel like we're buried in entry is pretty low. We have the opportunity to build something that's sustainable after COVID. Um, so in order to do that, we treated our customers as like we want your long-term business. We want after COVID, and you have your pick of the litter, you can go to whoever you want to because there's no allocation issues. Would would you why and would you still choose rhino? So it's up to us to create value when they needed us the most. Because sometimes during the crisis is when folks get taken advantage of because they don't have any other options and I think we treated people fairly we we really value the relationship so even as things open back up and they were able to go back to their traditional vendors we were there for them when they needed us the most and we took care of them we didn't take advantage of them so it's created uh, recurring opportunities and business for us
2: so did it affect your business or did it not affect your business
4: I think it 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 impacted our business in a a positive way because we we've been able to, to kind of understand and see verticals that, that some of the bigger guys don't even, it may be a blind spot for them, or it just may be something they can't get to um, because of they have to worry about other things. And, and we understand that from the, from the smaller
5: systems and the more disadvantaged systems, there's tremendous opportunity. And, and then, and, you know, the other thing is, and Lance and I were talking about it, when you start thinking about these smaller hospital and healthcare systems, they don't have, they don't even get the same level of attention from those manufacturers. So every manufacturer has a sales rep, right? And that go visit these hospitals and healthcare systems and they check on them and they make sure they're being taken care of. Some of these rural hospital systems don't even have a rep to to, to follow up with them to see how they're doing, right? And so for us, what created a lane for us that we were actively reaching out. To these uh, to these doctors' offices and hospital systems, these rural hospital systems they may not needed 30,000 boxes of, uh, of uh, gloves. they may maybe only needed a hundred cases of gloves and so for us we were able to one get them fair pricing during a time where pricing was a challenge and to give them reliable supply chain because they, and you start thinking about this the procurement professionals with inside of those systems they never had to strategically source for goods. They would go online to a McKesson or Metline and they would just place their order. They didn't know who to reach out to. They didn't know who they could trust. They didn't have any of that insight. And for us, that really created a lane.
4: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Is that before COVID, they didn't have anybody that was calling on them or that was checking in on them. So when COVID and it's still happening, those they didn't have anybody before. So now they're literally just left to to fend for themselves. And that's when whatever resources they had, whether it be a new startup company or uh, pre-existing relationship, they gave the opportunity. And then also, there's a lot of bad actors that, that anytime there's a crisis, there's a lot of bad actors that's going to pop up too to take advantage of this of the situation or the crisis. So that not only did they have many resources or, uh, to start with, but they had to entrust someone that they never really met or hasn't been in the industry long to take care of their investment. And you had a lot of people that, that took money and never produced, never had a supply chain, and they really just took advantage of a system that was already like down. And it was kind of like kicking the water down. Um, So having that financial background and and being able to take that responsibility, we knew that anytime that someone entrusted us with their investment, their money, uh, in order to source a particular good, you know, that's something that we took, you know, very seriously. And We knew how important it was to protect that. So these smaller places don't have a procurement
2: department that is dedicated to making sure that the center's. And these facilities have supplies on hand. And so you guys kind of came in and sort of did that for them.
5: Yep. So they have admi- a lot of them have an administrator that wears many hats, mm-hmm. right? You're talking about resources. They they're they could be spread thin, you know. And so they don't have someone like bigger hosp- like healthcare systems, like uh, let's say Common Spirit or Advent Health, like. They, they don't have a team dedicated to procuring their goods. They have an administrator potentially a, a, a administrator, who's purchasing those those goods for them. Or in some cases, they have nurses that are, are purchasing. Oh uh, wow! So to Elliot's point, like the
4: bigger systems have the specific catalogs that they only have to procure for. Like, so it may be only one item. Like you only work on this one particular item, and that's the only thing that you worry about procurement. Then we have a we have a rural system in our state that we recently helped and we were working directly with the chief nursing officer. So there's a lot that she has on her plate. And she also has to worry about like procuring important devices and products for her system to be successful and be able to support their patients. So you see it from the bigger systems have all kinds of resources from infrastructure and the smaller systems you may have someone in offices like literally on Google, just trying to do the best that they can and they don't know where to start. I'm curious about, because a lot of people you know, we're furloughed. Like
2: non-essential staff, we're furloughed and we're working from home. So, talk to me about that part of it uh, in terms of getting in touch with an administrator who might not have necessarily been at the center or might have been working from home. How did you do that part? How did you how did you reach people?
5: Yeah. So, so you know, in our business, it's really a, a customer interfacing job, right? I mean, you build credibility by meeting people, having face-to-face touch points. And so everything's been virtual for us since we, we haven't even been able to do a customer site visit because because of COVID. And so for us it was about leveraging technology and resources on you know who who were responsible uh, with inside of those uh, with inside of those hospitals, reaching out to them. And then you can imagine during a time where there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of fraud, uh, it's hard to figure out who to trust. How to actually build those relationships and build those touch points, and so I think what we did really well early on is making uh, connections and, and and getting mentors and and then people uh, seeing that we 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 built credibility with them and they were in turn willing to introduce us to their network and and that's in a large part that's kind of that's kind of how it's been this entire time so. for sure. And then just piggyback um, what Elliot's saying.
4: Off of what Ellie is saying, too, is that we we brought in a guy that had 13 plus years calling, uh, working with GPOs, group purchasing organizations, which a lot of these hospital systems are a part of. Um, you know, you basically get you get better pricing and rates because of the strength of everybody that's a part of that that particular you know association. And so he had been calling on GPOs for 13 years, so it, it he had credibility. Again, like if you know somebody, even if you, get, if you meet him 20 years later, if you had a positive experience with them. And you you know you valued their work, then you gave them opportunity. So that helped us. And then two, we've never pretended to be experts. And we feel very confident where we are now from a knowledge standpoint. But even from the get go, like we we knew that we needed a lot of help. And when we would meet people, we're confident in ourselves, and we knew if we had an opportunity to face up, whether it be a Zoom call, which is really that was what it was, um, a Zoom call, then mm-hmm. we can kind of tell them about ourselves and our vision for what we want to do and how we can help. And then we were able to, to earn trust and earn business from that. And then a lot of times, even with hospital systems, if they saw some gaps that we had and some dots that needed to be connected, they made introductions to for us. And then Elliot was really instrumental in getting us certified um, our MBE's minority business enterprise certificate. And through there came more uh, introductions because there's a lot of uh, many hospital systems and healthcare systems and businesses in ger- general have a diverse supplier spingle. And it's really challenging to find qualified vendors that meet that. So from there we had introductions. Um, so it's just, it's really just networking people believing in us, not necessarily through our industry experience in this particular industry, but just in general throughout our careers, believing in us and trusting us.
5: And in, in, in the other part that I think it was really important is developing our supply chain, having a reliable supply chain that we could deliver on and you know when we started the business, it was really brokering, off of someone else's supply, and we didn't want to be dependent and relying upon those resources. We wanted to have our own direct manufacturing partnership and distributorship agreement set up in place, and so that's and that's what we did. And uh, that allowed us to bring credibility. Uh, Lance didn't tell you the entire story. You know, we started out out of his uh out of an office outside of the basement of his garage. And then within, I think within six months, uh, you know, we, we grew so fast that now we're in a twelve thousand square foot warehouse and uh, and office spaces uh, where we actually distribute um, our products.
2: You guys are also, I, I saw the the video. You guys are also pretty hands on in terms of day to day operations. Uh, talk about that a little
4: bit a- after this interview. We'll take off this jacket, put on a different shirt, and then we'll be out in the warehouse wrapping pallets and making sure that the (laughs) cases of gloves and everything else get sent out. And and you know what? I actually appreciate that because everything that I've been a part of in my life from a career standpoint, I've started at an entry-level position, and there's no work that's beneath us, and it allows us to learn our business and a new business from the ground up. So we understand what it is from a logistics. We schedule trucks. We we handle all the shipping we got we got a team in place that, that everybody has a, a part that they play for us all to be successful but Elliot and i will be out in the warehouse doing everything we call on our customers so there's nothing that we don't do because it's our business and i actually think it's an advantage because we're not this big operation with a lot of overhead we're able to move faster and more swifter to make decisions right. uh, in, in our own business
5: yep so, and, right, and 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 the, and the other part and the other part of that is when you're thinking about uh, a startup business, right? We we are competing with companies that have been here for 20, 30, 40 years. And so the resources that they have in place, the established customer base that they have in place, they, you know, their margins are, are high enough to where they can they can have more resources to, to support their business. And for us, we're lean. Uh, we only have six employees uh, total within our business. Uh, and so we we have to make sacrifices until we can build our customer base up to where we can have additional resources, and that means sometimes that you know we we have a we have a suit and tie on, and in other days we we have our cargo pants and a t shirt, and and we have to support our customers and getting the resources that they need. So for us, it's just about continuing to grow and doing whatever we can to uh, to support our customers.
4: And it's fun. I mean, it's really honestly, it keeps you in tune we we talk to our customers so we understand like the pains that they're going through the challenges and anything that we can do to help make their life easier because at the end of the day they're the ones that's like really risking their lives and we're if we can help support them then it makes we have la says it all the time like what we do you feel it it has purpose like you truly it has purpose whether we're selling directly to a consumer or to an institution a hospital or a smaller office that that feels overlooked and that nobody really values their business because it may not be a lot, quote unquote, from a revenue standpoint. And we treat all of those those folks the same. Like there any we get excited to send out one case is the same excited as we get out to send out 600 cases of something.
5: Uh, and, and, and you got and you got physician offices and surgery centers that literally a day could be the difference. A, one day could be the difference in saving a life. That's how that's how serious mm-hmm. it is. So, so when we when we think about getting product to getting our products to our customers, by any means necessary, you know that means that I have to wrap a pallet or or load. We're gonna do it.
2: Can you talk about the donation part? How did you get into donations and giving to the community?
5: Yes, I mean
4: it's just something that we've always from before we had a a customer. We said, you know, if we have the opportunity, especially during a global pandemic, because we were we started a business because of heartbreak of a lot of folks getting sick. So it's a humbling business to begin with. So if there's an opportunity for us to give back, we were doing it before COVID with other things, just our personal lives, but we understood that this may give us a, a bigger opportunity and a platform to impact more people. So as we grow, so, so will that. Now, our charitable contributions and just being able to be more involved, whether it be just time, it could be mentoring, it could be whatever it is. It doesn't have to necessarily be like a commodity or a product, it could just be a bunch of different ways to make an impact in our community. And that's something that as we grow and continue to grow, that will as well.
2: But I guess I'm trying to find out how did you, how did you pinpoint where the need was?
4: Okay, I understand the question. So really, the most underserved, the more more rural, the school districts that really didn't have the resources. And in some cases, you can tell they were working on the budget because they were like, hey, I got to get it approved. But like, we may have to go with less because this is all we got, you know, like, when someone genuinely needs help, we don't question whether or not they're asking for it just so they can you know, get free stuff. It's like they genuinely need help. And those are the ones that we're more really attracted to to help because they're underserved and, and, and overlooked in a lot of instances.
2: Did you call on them or was it more of a situation of somebody sort of came to you and said, hey, look, these schools or this particular school and there might be more like us, we really need supplies?
5: In some cases we 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 have uh, relationships already established where you know we we seek out to to help underserved communities so we reach out to those just to give an example there's a there's a school district here in uh, Columbia and we said hey we're really looking to make donations to underserved schools that may not have the same resources can you point us to which schools would need that and then they would direct us to which schools would need it or maybe there or maybe there are uh, school districts that are just underserved underserved in general and so we we made it a priority to deliberately uh donate to to those school districts
4: and then too i mean you get inspired by other people that are in a community that have been doing that work for a long time and then you you look for ways to collaborate with those folks
2: okay well what's next on the horizon for rhino medical i see you guys have a consumer section on your website for example what's
5: what's next how do how do we continue uh to be sustainable, the, the pandemic is is going to end, and so how do we how do we continue to stay relevant? How do we increase our offerings to our customers? How do we uh, continue to diversify what we offer? Um, and then the second thing is how do we be disruptive? How can we offer a product at, at a at a price that's that's competitive, even more competitive, for uh, these smaller systems uh, to be able to purchase from? Because I think we talked about it earlier, you know, the larger you are, the more products you, you buy, the uh the better price that you get. So how can we give a similar how can we give that similar pricing to those smaller systems? And for us, that's a that's a key target uh customer uh, base is uh those smaller systems. Um so Yeah, and
4: I, I would just add like what's next for us is to continue to keep, just keep our head down and keep putting in the work. I mean, we have, we're very ambitious, right? So we, we wanna be the largest minority-owned um, healthcare d- distributor, uh, distribution company in the country. The biggest thing is like we wanna become a dominant force. you know, Elliot mentioned being disruptive. That's, that's kind of what we wanna do. And we're, we're already doing that. And we're seeing that continuing to build really valuable relationships, doing things in the in community, growing our business, um, growing our distribution, um, we, we, the best thing about our story is that we started out with a nationwide footprint. Without knowing anything about the industry, our, our playground was the entire country. So now that we're starting to hone in and we understand the business, we understand the relationships, we understand what it takes, we're able to move more swiftly and we're able to continue to grow and scale. So that's what's next is just keep our head down, stay humble, uh, find ways to be relevant, bring in new products, new ideas be disruptive all of those things and still give them back.
2: Just one last question out of curiosity. What made you guys decide to spin off and do a consumer section?
4: So we've been very fortunate and blessed to be featured in some some large publications. The the largest uh, being New York the New York Times. The the biggest story on that particular article was that daily you could watch, you know, CNN Sanjay Gupta was on CNN every day and he would show up in 95 N95 mask. And he would say, this is an N95, but you can't find them. So since you can't find them, here's other things you should use instead. Use this mask. And we were like, no, there's plenty of N95s available if you work with these local manufacturers who have answered the call, they got their NIOSH approval and are able to make them and they have inventory. This is, nobody's buying them. So that was a story. And that was a feature of the story, is that there's all of these U S suppliers of N95 that nobody's supporting. So from that article, we had 50,000 hits on our website. And we didn't have we had talked about maybe one day selling direct to consumers, but we didn't there wasn't a focus at that point. But we had 50,000 hits on our website. We didn't have any way to capture that business. However, the best thing that ever happened was that we didn't have a way to capture sales from consumers because we were able to hear their stories, like their unique perspectives of why it was important for them, everyday folks like you and I, to be able to get medical grade products and devices. And we heard stories from, I have stage four cancer and I just want something that protects me between my treatments. You know, we had an older gentleman that, that wrote in and he's like, hey, I'm at the end of my rope and I don't want COVID to be the reason it takes me out. So like if you can, prov- if, if I can buy a, a actual medical grade mask from you, then it's helpful. So from there, Charles and Elliot, um, we built a Shopify site within a day and, and, and then just start dinging. And then we realized there's a new vertical, there's a new opportunity for everyday consumers to be able to get medical grade equipment. And then and more importantly, even now, as the Delta variant is just raging through our communities.
2: Devastating. Most,
4: yeah. most folks don't have the proper PPE to take care of their loved ones. So if you get if someone gets sick in your household, is your wife, your husband, or a loved one that's taking care of you. So they're taking care of their loved ones with COVID without the proper protection to, to protect themselves from getting COVID. So it's also important in that regard is that you can also get something to protect yourself to to help you care for a loved one um, more safely.
2: Well, thank you so much. I know you guys got to get back to it. Um, yeah, It was great talking to you today.
4: I got to go wrap some pallets.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Don't put your back out.
4: <laughs> I know. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah,
2: thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Urban Health and Food. I hope you enjoyed today's show and that you'll join me again next week for more medical news and topics that matter to you. For UrbanHealthToday.com, I'm Tamara Thomas, and I'll see you next time.
1: Virginia Cooperative Extension is your local connection to Virginia Tech and Virginia State University. With offices in nearly every locality, Virginia Cooperative Extension provides low or no-cost services including well water testing, soil sampling, forage clubs and youth development activities, nutrition education, how-to workshops, and much more. Visit ext.vt.edu to see what your local Virginia Cooperative Extension team can do for you. At Virginia Cooperative Extension, we are changing lives. Virginia Tech and Virginia Cooperative
0: Extension are an equal opportunity affirmative action in- with prices soaring at the pump, filling up can be stressful. That's why Discover has your back with cash back.
2: Use Discover to earn 5% cash back at gas stations and Target, now through June, on up to $1,500 in purchases when you activate. We know every dollar matters right now, but you can count on us. Get up to $75 cash back this quarter with your Discover IT card. Limitations apply. Learn more at discover.com slash rewards.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.